two, one. This is Enter VR, the podcast on all things virtual reality, and I'm Chris Miranda, your host. On today's show, um, I have a really fun and exciting guest uh, that will join us on the exploration of the metaverse. Um, his name is Asad Balabanian. <laughs> yeah, that's about right. All right, all right. C- c- please correct me. I want to make sure that everybody knows what, how your last name is really pronounced. Uh, my name is Azad Balabanian, but I usually go by Oz, like the Wizard of Oz. Oh, cool. All right. Yeah. So we'll go with Oz for, for the, this today's purposes. Uh, yeah. So, Azad, you are a researcher at UC Santa Cruz, I believe. Yeah. Um, a VR researcher. Uh, and you're also working on UX design. Um, mm-hmm. Tell me a bit more about what you're doing at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Sure. Uh, so I'm, I guess, first and foremost, like HCI. Uh, Human-Computer Interaction and Interface is kind of my uh, major and what I really like to do on my school school time, work time, and free time. So it's kind of become my all-encompassing life. Um, I started getting into VR and understanding, the, seeing that the design and the UI, UX side of VR is still so um, unexplored. So that's kind of like where I'm really focusing in now. But my VR research actually is, has to do a lot with, um, body ownership and immersion and all the great stuff that we're kind of trying to, uh, optimize for, you know, the, the latest VR, uh, applications and things that we're using. Cause like with every new tech that comes out, it's, we're just getting more and more immersed into VR, like everything from body tracking to hand tracking, having like actually augmented reality, looking hands and leap motion, like little things like that. So, um, yeah, that's kind of a quick little introduction into what I've been doing in the past six, seven months. That's pretty awesome. Um, really quick, there I've noticing there is a little bit of noise coming from your speaker. It might be rubbing up, up against your clothes. Uh, oh, okay. So I'm gonna have to ask you to. This is a very difficult thing to ask. Yeah, yeah. Not fidget <laughs> while having a, a conversation. Um, yeah, no. But that sounds all right. I got a million questions right off the top of my head. What is what, body immersion? What do you up? What do you mean by body immersion? Sure. Um, okay. So you may have experienced some games or some things. Here. Does Does it sound better now? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I think that was my little heater in my room. I had to turn off. Oh, okay. Um, so immersion kind of is, you can quantify it as, uh, how do you, how in the world do you feel and how actually, uh, removed from the room that you're actually standing in, it feels. And you kind of, the way you kind of look at this is right now through like, uh, there's certain questionnaire and things that have been used before, uh, that have kind of shown that it's a kind of an okay way of studying it. I mean, it's not the best way. It's, you know, self-report obviously has its problems. But if you can kind of uh, minimize um, the issues that you can have with questionnaire and surveys with, you know, unbiased questions and whatnot and trying to get a good gauging of how people feel when they're in there. Because um, in the end, it's still a, it's a feeling, right, immersion. Like you can't really... Um, if you ask them how they, if they're here or there, like it's taking them out of it while they're in it, but like, it's kind of a feeling. And so if you feel immersed then you are immersed, um, but body ownership actually is interesting is because, um, body ownership is whatever, whenever you're in a VR body, or if it's even a body you're seeing in VR in front of you and it's correlating, it's, it's movements are correlating with your movements. Then you actually start to feel that that is your body. Like that is your body ownership. 
Um, and this is this was research actually done before VR even became a thing, and it was called like the rubber hand illusion. So it's pretty interesting that you kind of learn this in like basic psych classes nowadays, where they use mirrors essentially, and they put this rubber hand where your your hand is actually supposed to be. So you put your hand, and then there's they overlay your hand with an image, of like kind of like a mirror. Uh, they use mirrors and they put like a rubber hand that kind of matches the, your skin tone and also the size of your hand and where you feel that your hand is like proprioceptively. And then they like, you know, tickle it or run a feather over it and you can almost feel it on your hand. Like it's your body, your literally your brain is just like, oh, that's where my hand is supposed to be. And it looks like my hand. And since you're not moving it in the, you know, you don't have to track it, then you feel that that's your hand. And then they actually, at the end of the experiment, they, I don't know if they did this in the experiment, but if you put a knife <laughs> through the rubber hand, you feel pain in your own hand. Mm-hmm. So, so that's where body ownership really comes in. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, before uh, will you keep going forward, um, the little noise—it's still, sh- oh, still no. picking up. Um, it, what it sounds like, it's it sounds like it's your your little iPhone speaker is rubbing mm-hmm. up against your clothes or something. I think it's rubbing up against my beard. Um, oh man, that is a that is a very uh, wholesome beard you must have. <laughs> I'll, I'll look, here, let me just not try to move my head around much. And if it's happening more, please let me know. I might yeah. just take out my uh, my headphones and just use my uh, microphone normally. Wow, I, I, we just p- picked up a very interesting phenomena, the, the phenomena of a man's wholesome being <laughs> getting picked up by a microphone. I wonder if we can yeah. uh, use some deep learning for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can test it out. <laughs> yeah. Here's the question, though. Um, mm-hmm. Have you, do you, have you come a, become aware of any research or any um, anybody who's been put under an, an fMRI wherein they're, they're able to locate... Um, what sections of the brain light up when people feel presence or immersion? You know, what, what, where is that feeling coming from in the brain? Man, you're putting me on the spot here. Um, because that, I mean, I don't know if they've done VR research in fMRI itself, in an fMRI itself, but there are certain, um, okay. So there are certain brain areas that kind of do correlate with like your cell, like your idea of self. Um, they're, kind of, they're, they're certainly like frontal lobe kind of oriented because that's like uh, personality and higher decision making and things come from there. I could tell you, I could try to like bullshit through it and try to <laughs> tell you something, but I don't want to spread misinformation. So I can't tell you specifically where where you know this body ownership in the brain comes from but it's i mean it's a phenomenon what we're trying to look at is exactly like how to trick it and how to play with it instead of really trying to find where in the brain it is because neural imaging is still it's still elementary let's just call it like there's there's a lot of issues that you get with fmri because it's not a one-to-one like you're you know this i'm thinking this therefore this is exactly what's happening in the brain like the ways that the way fmri works is actually it um, measures how much oxygenated oxygenated blood comes goes up to your brain and when so whenever you do something your neurons start firing right and then uh, obviously you need some you need oxygen for those neurons to keep on going so you get blood rushing up into there so what that's what the fmri is actually picking up is like the um, the effect of your brain activity happening that's that's how that's what we're measuring with fmri so 
it's almost like a one or two steps removed, but it's kind of gives us a good understanding of like where is active and where in your brain is on, on act, inactive because that's also very important. It's like what parts of your brain are being inhibited, what parts of your brain are being are activated. Very interesting. Not only that, I feel like it would be kind of tricky to put someone um, inside of a machine that has magnets with a an HMD that has right, metallic right, parts. Right. Yeah, I can I can imagine. You know, yeah, a very. Um, what's that movie? What's that movie where the like where where you had that puppet, that evil puppet, giving people these torturous scenarios? Uh, Saw. It was it Saw? Yeah, I think it was yeah, Saw. Saw. Yeah, yeah. That is a good Saw sequence. Imagine putting someone <laughs> <laughs> strapping you to an fMRI and you have an HMD on and you know that shit's about to go down and you're just like the time is clicking, Mr. Bond. And you're just, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh man. What is the objective of your research, you know, over the past uh, you know, how, however long you've been working on So this? I guess I didn't even really mention who I'm working or where I'm working. Mm-hmm. So I'm currently in UC Santa Cruz, and we have like kind of a really big computer science and psychology department. So this is like an obvious marriage of the two. Um, I work in uh, Nicholas Davidenko's lab, uh, where it's called Perception Lab. So he does all things perception, either face perception or angle orientation and, and um his main focus is kind of like around faces and that's kind of like where he comes from but some of his grad students have their own projects and so this uh, part of the perception lab is called the ocu lab and that's where i work in i'm an i'm a uh, undergrad researcher there so don't don't take me as you know too much of an authority on the lab but i i'm i don't know i like to do a lot of this but um so the research that we are kind of we don't have a main, main focus because we, we have a couple of projects that go on simultaneously. Um, currently, we're finishing up the uh, project we had with Leap Motion, and we're looking at um, kind of the body ownership of your own hand or the immersion factor when it comes to just having your either using an Xbox game controller to move a hand or just using your own hand in, with a Leap Motion in VR mm-hmm. and moving it that way. Uh, I mean, you think obviously that you would be more immersed and you'd like your hand a lot more uh, or you'd feel that your hand is more yours when you have deep motion. I mean, it seems intuitive enough, but it's good to have, you know, numbers and um, good quantifiable data behind these intuitions that we have. Um, So that was something I was helping run at the end of it. That wasn't really my idea or design, but... Currently, I'm actually um, writing up a pro- proposal for kind of looking into uh, exposure, essentially, where I want to just like see how VR is affecting you. Mm-hmm. So, so like comparing something like being in VR for five minutes versus being in there for an hour. Um, so, I mean, I'd love to do like a 24-hour study, but like IRB, which is the International Review Board, kind of holds me back from uh, having in test subjects for like more than an hour, or at least that's kind of the like participants have that we run. We can only keep them for an hour. Like, if you need to get them for longer, then it'll be a lot more of a lengthy process through you know review boards and and whatnot. But that's kind of like what I want to be looking into because I think VR could have have some interesting kind of effects on your you and your body and the way you think um yeah that's that's the real meat and bones of vr for me like that's like how does it actually change you um we've noticed that it changes you inside of the vr like while you're still in it 
Um, there's this wonderful phenomenon that called, that's called the Proteus effect. That's, uh, I was this researcher, Yi, I think Nick Yi from, from Stanford, from the Baleson lab. Um, they've done actually a lot of things um, from the past. Like they, they used to do virtual reality um, research back in like the 90s and the early 2000s. And they're all using, you know, some weird proprietary HMDs with like 40 degrees of, uh, of you know, field of view is like 40 degrees and is running at like 30, 40 uh, you know, hertz for the screen, which like these specs are, you know, horrible now and yeah. like, yeah. By the we, way, your beard is coming back. So damn just, it. Just, okay. You know, okay. 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 We're, we're Here. doing really good though, but your beard let me, is. Let me. Such an epic beard you must have, sir. Uh, how is how does the sound? Way sound? better. Uh, are you delaying or are you um, echoing yourself or nope, anything? Nope. Okay. Cool. Good. Yeah. Sorry about that. I don't know. It's all good. It's all good. Um. But yeah. So so tell me more about the system they're using. So they so the Proteus effect kind of they the way they were looking at it was um how does the the, the word even Proteus comes from like the Greek mm-hmm. god um and it was about like it was a god that could take on many forms and kind of do things differently almost like acting in a sense but so the Proteus effect is essentially when you embody a different avatar your behavior actually changes even without you trying to or, or whatnot. Like it's kind of an unconscious thing that whenever we wear like a certain outfit or a certain even uniform, it changes your um, behavior. Mm-hmm. And so he was looking at this and what he discovered is that taller avatars like in negotiation tasks are actually a lot more confident. Um, avatars with like more attractive faces actually ended up um, having more intimate uh, conversations and interactions with others like they would get up closer to them they would um talk about more intimate subjects so there's a lot of like so that was that was how the code uh, the proteus effect was coined mm-hmm. and now there's being more research done on like oh wow like so it, so being in a different avatar really changes your behavior like how how far can we take this you know mm-hmm. um there's there was an actually really interesting research that came out from Spain. I'll have to find the name of the uh researcher, but it was about like having size differences. So if you're an adult and you go and you actually embody a an avatar of a child, that actually changes your perception of how big objects are. You know, because you know when you're a child, like everything seemed bigger to you. Yeah. Like everything, like even your room, even your toys. And then when you're like, a, you know, when you're an adult, you go back, you look at them, you're like, wow, that, that's not so big. So they wanted to test that in VR. And so they, um, they had all these adults um, look at themselves in VR with an adult body first. And then, uh, then they put them into a child's body with like they were looking at themselves in a mirror and they could re- see that they're a child. And then they made them estimate the size of certain objects. And then they overestimated by a lot. And the way they they um, they tested for, um, I mean, the, the way they controlled, like you know, just being smaller as the thing that makes you think bigger. They actually took the adult sized model and then they scaled it down to a child size. And then they t- did the test over again, um, and they realized that people were still overestimating when they're in a child's body than they were in an adult's. An old, in an adult body, but scaled down. So 
there's something to realizing you're in a different body and kind of your brain accepting what that body's characteristics are like, um, be it kind of a social way, be it kind of a physical thing with the kid's body size. Um, so, I mean, it's, you know, being in a uniform really does change your behavior. That's been shown. It's um, interesting. Let me, so going into this 24 hour project or, uh, along those lines kind of project, you know, what are your hypotheses? What do you think that you'll, um, what sort of information you think you can walk away with? Right. Um, so that's kind of the, the part of the proposal that I'm still working on and to figure out, you know, what to be actually testing for. Um, cause I want to see what after effects VR has, right? So the one after effects, like there's only a few done on it. The one that comes to mind is this racial bias one that they've done. They actually put someone, I remember you talking about this in your last podcast and I wanted to mention it to you there. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about how racism would work in VR. And I was like, oh, that's it. They actually did this really interesting research where they put someone in, um, they took, I think white, white, uh, subjects or participants and they put him into a black person's avatar and they had him standing in front of a mirror and so what they noticed is that after um, they did an implicit association test or it's called racial implicit association test uh, IAT I think is what it's called uh, like a week or two before the actual um, experiment and that's kind of is trying to find like implicitly how much you know how what's what's your racial bias and then after they were in a in a black body essentially for I'm not remember how long it was I don't think it was very long after they took him out and they took a another test and they the same kind of test but like different questions um, they found out that they actually reduced their racial implicit bias by a lot which is really interesting because it's kind of you're walking in someone else's shoes, so you kind of embody them, and therefore you start to almost um, connect with them in a sense, you know, or feel for them. So I think empathy can be, you know, greatly improved by just having VR be a facilitator for that, which is really interesting. Yeah, you know, I've, I've as as excited as I am about empathy, the empathetic implications of virtual reality, I've met people who don't give a shit about empathy, <laughs> um, and that is fascinating in and out of itself. Mm. Um, and so my question is, like, what do you think are the limits of this new medium of you know empathetic communication? Are we are, is there is there just a certain segment of the population that no matter how good VR is to drive empathy for the rest of us? Mm-hmm. Um, there's just going to be a segment that won't, you know, won't give a fuck. That's such a hard question. And I wish, I mean, that's like something I think about a lot, actually. And you think, what's the, you know, what's the problem with people like this? Like, and maybe it does come down to kind of the neuroanatomy of people. Or, I mean, you know, we want to play the nature versus nurture game. But like, I mean, in my honest opinion, it has a lot to do with like nature has a lot to do with the potential for things. And then nurture is what actually uh, makes it real, makes the gene express itself in a certain way. So, I mean, who knows? Maybe there's there could be certain differences between um, personality type archetypes and the way they respond to. I mean, emotional intelligence has a lot to do with empathy, I think. Um, emotional intelligence is kind of like, an, I think it was proposed in the seventies. If you've ever heard of it, it's like, it's the 
not the opposite, but it's kind of supposed to work with IQ because IQ only tests for very specific type of intelligence, like, you know, like matchmaking and and problem solving in in a very specific manner. EQ, emotional quotient or emotional intelligence kind of looks at how well you can understand other people's, um, uh, feelings and how, you know, you have a good theory of mind, essentially. Like, can you understand how another person is feeling? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, maybe some people just have less EQ and they just, like, the empathy thing is just not working for them. So, yeah, it's worth it's worth looking into. I think VR actually is going to start doing, like, facilitating a lot of old research to be redone in VR because, like, I actually was talking to a, a, another scientist from from Germany. He's doing some VR research, and they're re- essentially, you know, like, what thought experiments, you know, you know what thought experiments are. Uh, for the uninitiated, let's give me the quick and skinny. Sure. So one thought experiment is, like, the trolley problem. Like, it's a common philosophy uh, you know, one-on-one thing that you take. It's like, okay, you you are a person in a trolley. You know, you're the person driving it, and there's gonna be there's like there's two tracks you can go down, and on one track there's gonna, like one person standing there that if you go down that track you're gonna kill him because you're gonna run him over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the other track there's gonna be five people. You know, like which track do you take? Do you know the the last, the path of least resistance, or you know, the least death, or the most death. Like you know, these are kind of like ethical problems. And the way they've always been done is through thought experiments. And that's like, okay, envision this, envision that. What if we just take those envisionings and actually create them, put you in a situation, and then just like test your actual, um, you know, the, your decision by you doing them? Because it's very different from you thinking of doing something versus actually doing it. So. I'm really curious to see what happens with something like that. Yeah, I want to backtrack a little bit earlier to what you said about uh, your perception um, and and having uh, people live in the avatars of others. I think um, one example that I really that really sticks out in my mind is is um, the Six Sense lightsaber demo I tried a while ago. I remember mm-hmm. everybody that went through that demo and did the Jedi moves and. Um, had a lightsaber that could that they could swing around. Um, after the five minutes, I, you notice, and and it wasn't just me noticing. Monica Joe um, that I had on the podcast a while ago, she was telling me about yeah, you know, you could notice people walk in, all slouched, all you know, um, in their normal posture or the one they've been accustomed to, and then they walk away with just this. With a little bit, just just the uh, air of confidence in their in their face and the, in their way they walked and the way they carried themselves, and that was extremely, extremely powerful. Because um, because because yeah, what is the relationship here between perception and human behavior? Um, and, yeah. And what is what is VR doing here? What are, what are your thoughts? So. The that that's actually something interesting that you touched on, and it's kind of like this um, body to mind kind of feedback loop of the way you feel and the way your body kind of shows that feeling. Um, it's not a cause to effect; it's kind of like a loop. So whatever you kind of are, if you're slouched down, you're actually kind of triggering your own, your mind to kind of like think in a more 
you know, slouch down away in a sense. Like, uh, so, so there's, there's research done on like people kind of like taking standing poses, like kind of like power poses mm-hmm. and then taking a test or afterwards or like kind of a, essentially what they saw is that their confidence level r- rose a lot just by kind of like taking up more space and taking like the power pose that you get whenever you, you accomplish something. Um, so is that kind of like related to what you're talking about or yeah, am I? Yeah, it, it, it is. I mean, one thing that I would, uh, I'm weary of in my personal uh, experience is that whenever I, I, I used to walk into a test um, mm-hmm. or an exam really confident, mm-hmm. um, I would do the worst. <laughs> when I would walk and while walk into an exam feeling like nervous and weary, you know, I would do the best. Right. So, by essentially, like, could we by could we by having the good intentions of giving people confidence, could we trigger a whole new set of problems um, for people in the long run? Because right. you know they're not as 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 self critical and or self analyzing as they used to be. What do you think on that? Yeah, um, it's interesting. I mean. From what I've read, I would tell you like the contrary would be true because I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, I walk into a test, I'm like, oh, I'm about, I'm about to ace this, and then yeah. I walk out with not with a C. Um, that's happened before, but I feel like that's confirmation bias more than it's actually true. Mm. Um, because so the reason why I think that is because there. Every time kind of an event happens with a degree of emotion attached to it, we mark it down in our memories. Like think of like it goes down to goes back to like prehistoric times where like if a crazy animal jumps at you, you know, obviously that strikes a big fear or a big disappointment in your head. And you want to be able to remember that so that you don't make that mistake again. So that's where really confirmation bias comes back. And then we we notice phenomenons like that where like we win it when and really confidently – and then got out with a feeling that we did well, we actually didn't. And then when you see that you didn't do well, you're like, "Oh, what the hell!" Like, so that so, so you think that's true. But so from the from the research that I was just talking about, they they said kind of the opposite. Like, if you do take kind of a more confident pose and a more confidence things, you end up walking in there with more confidence and you know, kind of doing better. I don't know how much better that will be, but you know, anything is better than you know nothing. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of problems or kind of little phenomena like this that we don't even know about that could exist in VR. And I think a lot of that will start coming around or being able to notice it in like social VR, you know, like things like alt space and VR chat and things. And the more people kind of like do things and interact with each other, um, I think we can start seeing like new interesting phenomena that we could like look into like oh like we never would have you know thought this would have happened because if you're in, if you're in vr everything's being tracked and everything has data and numbers associated to it then you have a lot more um data to kind of access and to do correlational studies with so let me let's have a discussion here because there's <laughs> something that you talked about earlier that i'm i'm curious about and speaking of social vr um, so essentially what you said a little bit earlier was we're, we're discovering that through VR, we're pretty much naturally wired to be mm-hmm. biased for people who are tall and beautiful, hmm. right? Sure. Like it seems like, it seems like that's, that's the thing, you know, and, and, and it just, you know, all we, well, all we have to do is look at, you know, look at every TV show, every commercial, every, um, every person who's, who's more or less popular on YouTube, 
yeah um, on average they're they're pretty tall and beautiful right and it's not even the perceivers that like change their behavior it's the people that even perceive themselves to be tall and beautiful change their own behavior even even if they weren't before like if they're embodying an avatar that's tall and beautiful then they will even start like acting more <laughs> towards like some things like that now nature there's there seems i mean is what is the argument here for like nature doing this you know is 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 there is 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 nature um what what is what is the evolutionary biology reasoning for why we discriminate towards these uh populations of people and so and and, mm-hmm. and so that plus can we in vr retrain the brain to not discriminate towards uh that segment of the population so that so so that um so that people don't so that people can give more intimate time to people who are short and not as attractive. You know what I'm saying? Like, can we yeah. reverse this sort of natural thing that we're wired for through VR? I think the easy answer to that or the easy solution to a problem like that would just be make all the avatars the same height <laughs> then you know, kind of level the playing field. Um, and that's kind of what certain, you know, like, uh, social apps are kind of doing in, in, in VR, or at least the ones that I've looked at. Um, the way, I guess the only kind of way I see people sympathize, not sympathizing more of like understanding and like less actually having bias towards like uh, taller people or, you know, less, um, attraction towards like taller people would i guess hopefully be through empathy you know if you can like live the day in life of like being let's say like four foot nine um and how things feel and how people are like looking at you or the way you know just you interact with things maybe if you have that experience that you actually will have um enough of an you know emotional response that that kind of stays in your head and the way you treat or even you interact with you know people that are shorter than you is you kind of have that in mind of like oh wow like i don't want to you know cause more stress to this person um that's i mean that's like a very big uh, interesting thing to look into or that i really want to be seeing that you know how is vr going to be changing our interactions with each other and how it could change society because i mean the internet was really good at this right because we started to realize like oh well there's a lot of people that kind of think like me that even joke like me across the world in a different language mm-hmm. and it i think brought about like a great kind of um feeling of like oneness even even if you know we're seeing a lot more we're seeing a lot of wars and things happen between ideologies but i think on a personal level down to like this the the population of people like people kind of sympathize and empathize with each other more because of our connectedness so i think vr is just a one wonderful next leap and step in that direction where you're actually interacting with them on a, on a face-to-face basis because that's the big difference in social VR versus just chatting and IMing or even Skyping like what we're doing now. I'm not seeing you face-to-face, unfortunately. If we were doing this in, in a VR social app, like we are actually standing next to each other, looking at each other, um, you know, even 
that are robotic avatars, but you can see the other person's head move, the way their hands move. You can really understand their body language, and that is huge. That is absolutely crucial for any kind of communication because, like, I don't know if this is true or not, but like 60% of communication actually happens through like body language. You know, it's not what you say, it's how you say it, it's how your body moves around to it. And everyone has their own specific body language that you you will know if the person you're talking to is actually that person and not just an imposter you know that's that that could be a real thing yeah that's really interesting um yeah it's hmm, that's interesting well let me go back to empathy for a sec because because mm-hmm. what do you think it's gonna take i mean do you think do you think people want um to feel empathy is is that is is there a market need? And now we're walking we're walking into more of a business sort of question uh, section of the podcast. Is there a market need for empathy? Do you think that people, or is it, or is it the fact that just people don't know what they want yet? You know, once they get they feel what empathy is like through VR, then they'll be like, oh shit, well this is something that I can go back to over and over again. And so if that would be the case, if that ever does happen, you know, what do you think are the implications of the commodification of Mm -hmm. empathy um, through VR? That's very interesting. And I think empathy can be split into, you know, I don't think it's one thing. Mm -hmm. It's because there's, let's say, like negative or positive empathy where um, someone is doing really well, you know, like if they're, let's say they're a celebrity and they're having like a very luxurious life. Do you want to kind of like feel how it feels like to be them and i think that's that the answer to the question is somewhat yes because there's a lot of reality shows that exist there's like you know there's just celebrity madness that happens that people want to keep up with them mm-hmm. and almost empathize with them and almost feel that they're in the same room with them with you know reality tv um negative empathy i think is also probably not as desired but still I don't know if if everyone is into it as you'd expect. I, there's probably like differences between, like I said, you know, emotional intelligence and whatnot. But I think that 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 still exists, and if it's approached in the correct way, I think people could be very receptive to wanting to feel the empathy, even if it's a kind of a negative emotion with other people. Um, yeah, I I all right. So I got I gotta keep playing the devil's advocate, even though I like and and I really uh, <laughs> I like uh, it. Keep it on, keep my on, on my toes <laughs> for sure. Um, no, I, I I agree with a lot of things you're saying, but I want to make sure that we have a, a fruitful discussion here, sir. Yes. Yes. Um, here's the thing about empathy, though, and and seeing what I'm I'm noticing, I might sound like an asshole that I, that has lost faith in in faith in human in humans period but but if 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 somehow there's a, a vr application that lets you be in the shoes of taylor swift versus be in the shoes of a bangladeshi garment worker i would bet money that most people want to be taylor swift uh-huh. and by that metric i am concerned that um that 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 vr won't have this impact for good that i think it could possibly have, and it's not. And again, I don't know if there's anything that we can do about this at this point. But what do you think to that thought? Um, hmm. So, are you asking like why do most people want to be in Taylor Swift's shoes versus uh, a farmer's shoes? Yeah, and why? And what? And so, and so the thing is, if if the objective, I mean, if the idea of VR is to improve 
life on earth for everyone as we know it um and it's not for everyone that's that has that objective in their mind but i that i know um but i know that that we should have a little bit of that objective in mind um then 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 i think that unless this empathy taylor swift vr app gives people a real real three-dimensional idea of what it's like to be this human being and her struggles with whatever the fuck it is that she struggles with and that life on her side of the you know uh wizard of oz sort of spectrum is not as pretty as people think it is maybe that is valuable that would could that could be valuable um yeah i, I think it is i think it would be valuable and i think that's what like um superstar kind of documentaries do like or like you know on tour documentaries because the 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 front stage of the tour you know of the concert is very just you know out uh, out of this universe kind of a thing like that they're the, the taylor swift standing on that stage is is god all of a sudden yeah um and that's what you know most people perceive them as and then you start looking at the backstage stuff um you see the behind the scenes you do the thing you're like oh wow they, it's like they, it's a pretty tough life that they're living you know probably not as tough as like a farmer's life let's say but mm-hmm. like it's still kind of a tough life so I think documentaries like that kind of you know help people get better perspective, but I think from a day to day kind of like what kind of what kind of media do you want to consume in in every day? Like mm-hmm. there's some there's certain days where you do want to watch kind of like a serious kind of documentary about you know things. It's not going to make you feel good, but it's kind of helps you empathize with that person. Yeah, and um, there's certain days where all you do all you want to do is just watch VR porn. So there's a day for everything. <laughs> right yeah exactly so it, it depends on on I, I guess there's probably a better medium out there for you know for feel for feeling in the shoes of god and how it feels like to be in somewhere really cool like i just i just watched a 360 video um next to tom brady actually from the patriots and they were shooting this you know 360 video from right in from right in the middle of the offensive line and the quarterback and they were doing practice runs and you're like holy shit like it feels like i'm on the team like this is really cool like you can see exactly how things work out so would you rather you know watch a video like that or would you rather you know be in a jail cell next to inmates i mean there's an argument to be made that you do want that to exist, but you don't want the, you're not wanting to consume that every day. You know? I'd rather be in a jail cell. I don't give a shit about football, <laughs> really. <laughs> um, but no, you're. I mean, yeah. There's, but there's definitely a market for both, and I think the hanging out with Tom Brady is a bigger market for sure. I would say. Right. And VR journalism, I think, is going to start. I mean, it's already been a thing of of all the small little VR companies and things that exist. Journalism has already made an, uh, an entrance by the, by the way of New York Times and Verseworks. Like that's the, the, the beautiful merging of the two that they they put out a video i think it was a month ago called the displaced and it's actually um this 360 kind of like um video article about this the the syrian displaced and the nigerian uh not sorry not the nigerians the, uh, the sudan victims um it jumps around even the ukraine kids and you get to kind of walk around with them and see you know what their life is like and journalism is going to you know love that because how else how better of a way do you, do you tell a story than to actually put them right in the midst of the story itself 
I agree. Uh, and I've seen it, and it's a very powerful, uh, moving right. sort of um, documentary piece. Yeah, let me ask you, just to backtrack, and, and just going back to the fundamentals, why is VR important to you? Hmm. Mm. VR. VR. So I kind of came, I'm coming at this. The research side obviously is very interesting to me because I'm starting to see so many differences between, you know, how you wouldn't expect something like, you know, a phenomenon like produce affecting things to actually, you know, exist to the extent that they do. But if you kind of think about it, they kind of make sense. Like even if, even if you think of Philip Zimbardo's like Stanford prison experiment from the seventies, like, you know, wearing different costumes and being in different roles really affected their behavior to the point that they were abusing the other participants. But to me, the reason why I'm so interested in VR is because it's such a new medium. It's almost like I was talking to some other coworkers and, and how we see, you know, where we are right now. And we all kind of agree that this is like 1994, you know, on the, brink of internet becoming a thing again and people are like oh how do i make websites you know how does this web design even work like how am i supposed to lay out links and how how am i supposed to make ui for this kind of thing and so me being a designer that's like my main like oh my god i can't like this is no one still knows sorry about that (laughs) um no one really knows how to make any of this yet any of how how do you make a user interface in a full 360-degree environment? How do you use the Z-depth that you have in front of you? How do you um, how does th- a stereo 3D work in something like this? And what it's kind of been shown is that pro- uh, having spatial spatial things to your um, user interfaces, like say on your left side you have your counting stuff, on your right side you have your just mess around and Facebook and Reddit and whatnot, um, it actually increases productivity for, by forty percent. And so, like I, what I, what I've kind of just like been designing and whatnot is like, how do you actually lay these spatially out in a VR workspace, and you know it'll help you do your work better. But that's like a very, I think what you're trying to get at is a little bit more broad of an answer, mm-hmm. like. Like how does how do you want VR to affect society? Is that kind of like what you're? Yeah, just on a personal level, like what's motivating you to be part of this? Yeah, I think it's such a new uh, medium that I kind of want to be like, uh, essentially, I know it's a little much to say, but like a pioneer in like how the interface and gestures and uh, buttons even work in this kind of an environment, and that's kind of what I've been doing on my free free time is just like read up on like whatever little design articles and videos and talks that they have and figure out how to help to, to even display information to the user in a way that actually feels normal and natural because everything that we've been doing till now is essentially taking a, you know, a 16 by 9 screen from a 2D plane, putting it in front of us in a 3D space and then just playing with that because it's so what is that what is that doing that's nothing that's just emulating a 2D screen in three dimensional like that doesn't do anything that's not helping you in in, a, in any kind of spatial way um cuz you yourself like humans are so very good at spatial 
task and reasoning and even spatial memory. Spatial memory is actually is very old because if you think about it, like every every animal kind of possesses that. Like they know how to get back home. They know how to move around their own space. If you tell them to, you know, remember um, a poem or something, it's a lot harder to do because words um, – let's say words, sounds, and all phonemes and things are harder to kind of, they're a lot newer of an evolution in our brain, and they require a lot more associations made, um, a lot more, like let's say, mnemonic devices for you to remember what those are, but you're very good at remembering spaces. So what 3D or what VR is doing is really adding spatialness to your um, virtual or to your electronic applications. So if you can use that to your advantage, then you will increase productivity by a lot and even just increase the intuition and the intuitiveness of, of a system for someone like even like 60, 70 years old to like go into VR and understand that those things are buttons that you can touch and they know what those buttons will do based on how they're placed or where they're placed and how they're labeled. And they know what interaction they need to be doing with them to get that button to be pressed. Like, because if you give an 80 year old that's never used a computer before, the level of, of abstraction of a mouse is pretty high, I'd say. Like, because you have to move a mouse uh, in, let's say, what's that's the in the Z field, I know, like front and back, so that the mouse can move on the screen in a different plane so that you can click a button here so that the mouse can click a button there. And, you know, do you see what I mean? Like the level of abstraction from you doing something to something mm-hmm. happening is pretty wide. And iPhones made that a lot easier where you're actually tapping on the thing that you want it to work. In VR, you actually will be, you know, touching or holding the thing that you actually want to interact with. I think that's where things get the most intuitive kind of um, interaction with. So let me ask you this. So, so essentially, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is that ever since we've invented the printing press and we've been dealing with information on the 2D paradigm through text and screens, flat screens, mm-hmm. we haven't been able to tap into the spatial memory module of the brain. Yes. And by using VR, we're able to tap into this net, this extra module that will add more. Mm, what is it doing? Is it it's adding more? Of an, uh, so it's adding more. Uh, I don't want to say adding more memory, but helping you remember things better because of the spatial memory, spatial memory, and also your muscle movements and, and actually doing those actions. Like the reason why you walk so easily is because you've just been doing that for thousands or for not thousands, let's say decades, you know, you've been, you've been walking and that spatial movement has become such a, um, entrenched neural pathway that, you know, you've done it so many times over and over. It's like such an easy movement. It doesn't require much cognitive load. And that's what I think VR is very good at is if, if you tap into certain movements and actions that some people have been people just do on a regular basis, mm-hmm. then the amount of cognitive load, cognitive load just means like how much like attention and memory it takes for you to like do something, think, think of something to pay attention to something, mm-hmm. then that will be a lot uh, reduced. Sorry about the nose. There, there's a 
uh, parking garage. Oh, no worries. It's all good. Opening. Yeah, no, um, I got dogs and I got, yeah, don't, it's all good. Not, um, ideal, not an ideal uh, <laughs> podcasting environment. Right? No environment is an ideal podcast <laughs> environment. Let's get that out of the way. But you're on, you're on a good track. Tell me more. What's, uh, what else do you um, think about the spatial memory utilization of the brain here? Sure. Um, yeah, I think, so have you ever watched the, uh, the show Sherlock on Netflix? I hear good things. Um, and the only, and the, and and where I heard, heard, where (laughs) I heard good things of it was in the other Netflix show, Master of None. Right. Uh, Aziz Ansari's. Right. Yeah. They're, they're watching the show Sherlock and they're just like, this is a great show. So. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm gonna take their word for it. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of amazing. Um, every episode is an hour and a half, uh-huh. um, so it's kind of it's a movie. Every episode is a movie, and it's beautiful. Just Benedict Cumberbatch. Benedict Cumberbatch is is an interesting man. Um, the reason why I bring up the show is because in one of the episodes he references this really interesting kind of phenomenon or. Or this, it's called a mnemonic technique. Mnemonic, I actually don't know what the word itself is referring to, but mnemonic techniques are just like these ways that you can help yourself remember things. So if you, like one thing is chunking, where your working memory span is seven slots, like seven plus or minus two. So you can, if I tell you seven or if I tell you 10 things, you'll pretty much remember like five, six, seven of them. Mm-hmm. And you remember what's in the beginning of the list. You'll remember what's at the end of the list. Um, what mnemonic techniques do is like kind of help you utilize that seven memory slots. And if you do things like chunking, where if you put multiple things in one slot, then you'll actually remember those things. So it's kind of like cheating your own memory in a sense. Are you? Do you see what I mean? Like, do you, is that? Do you want me to explain that? A let's let's more? let's actually do an experiment with the fans. Um, well, let's. I'm yeah. gonna name off ten things that I see in my um, in my surroundings right now. Okay. And in the next ten minutes, this is a completely arbitrary experiment. So please take everything I'm about to say for a grain of salt. <laughs> I mean, maybe this works out. Um, I'm gonna say ten things, and at the at the end of the ten thing, at the end of the ten minutes, don't write it down. Um, I'm gonna uh, say them again. And it, you'll count off how many you got right. So yes. I'm going to say printer, mm-hmm. yoga ball, mm-hmm. stapler, okay, dog, mm-hmm. Polaroid camera, TV, and diploma. Okay, so based on the prime and prime, what is it called? Recency effect. You can basically say I can say the last thing you said because it's like I'm almost hearing it in my head again. So uh, you ended it with diploma. So also, I remember the beginning definitely. That's called the re- the. Um, oh man, I'm forgetting my psych terms. But essentially, beginning of the end, the beginning and the ends of list. You're very good at remembering. So you started with printer, yoga ball, um, stapler. Mm-hmm. And then you, I think you mentioned dog after that, Polaroid TV, and diploma. Okay, so I got all of them. I don't know if, how many were there. Is that seven? Like more, more or less. Yes. Um, so that's actually you. You you had exactly for my working memory span. Like I didn't forget any of them. <laughs> but 
So actually, there's an interesting thing I was kind of doing to remember all of those. And this is kind of what I was trying to reference earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, spatially, if I was actually, when you were telling me these things, I was pretty much laying them out in my room or I'm like, okay, so I'm sitting at my desk. You said printer. Printer, I thought, would be on my left because um, that's where I had it, I have it in my lab. You said yoga ball. The yoga ball would probably be right behind me because I'm not using or looking at it. Stapler. You said stapler. I like. I know the stapler would be on my desk, so I placed it kind of forward. Diploma would be on the wall. A dog would be behind me. So I actually was using spatial memory and spatial associations to place things and you referencing those spatial memories is a lot better than just referencing random tidbits of information like a word or a name because those things have less associations associate less less have less kind of like connections to them and it the beautiful thing beautiful thing about memory is that a memory or a piece of information in your head doesn't really just exist. It exists by how it's connected to other things. Because if it exists without no connections, you can't access it. It's like, think of like a, a file in a random folder um, oh. where you just don't really have like the, the links to get to there. Um, that's kind of how your memory works, which is why like things like mnemonic devices help you. Like, Which is also why names are really hard to remember. Because when someone tells you their name... What is that word even connected to? It's just a random like string of phonemes, you know, just thrown at you like like I mean, that doesn't make any sense to you unless you actually take that name. You've heard someone else having that name. You look slightly like them. You're like, okay, I'm going to associate this name with that other person that looks like this person who's also like these things. So you start putting all these associations to them, and then you are better at remembering their name. Okay, so fo- so follow me down this path of uh, pseudoscience because so the thinking is and and the thinking is neurons that fire together wire together right yeah. and if you're and so if you're having um, a cluster of neurons that are and and again this might be pseudoscience a cluster of neurons that mean that are where you're storing the yoga ball information. If you if you if you pair that uh, and associate that information that cluster with the spatial relation to you, then you have this connection. This this these these mm-hmm. you see what I'm saying? This cluster of the associ- so the association of the ball where in its and, and then you have the where it's located in space. So that's another module of the brain, and I, and, and so I wonder if that's what the line of thinking is here by giving it more of a. Um, Man, I don't even know what it is, but giving it more, more information. Data. I guess. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you're right into thinking that way. And I think it goes even a level beyond that with spatial things because you actually kind of – okay, I think – I don't know if this, there's a lot of truth to what I'm saying, but intuitively it feels like this to me. But having – like imagining things spatially actually kind of pl- spa- uh, places them in where you are perceiving them to be. So – Take, for example, you're putting that yoga ball at um, seven degrees from like seven o'clock from you. You know, 12 o'clock is in front, so seven o'clock right there. Mm-hmm. So even if you move about the room, it, with your, uh, you move around the room, you close your eyes, and then you're asked to point to where that, it, that yoga ball you placed is in your brain. I think you'll be able to point to where that was. Like you have, you're very good at like putting things spatially. And so, um, that, so that's kind of like the, the 
modules or that kind of thinking that I want to act like I'm kind of trying to tap into because that's what VR is going to be great at doing. Like, Mm -hmm. so this is one level from that is they did a study on iPhone apps on, um, on taking away all the icons of your apps and you are actually pretty, pretty well at doing the same tasks and whatnot and finding the apps even without looking at the icons because you spatially place them in specific spots and you've been accessing certain apps every single day so many times a day like if i say if i say tap on your messages app on your iphone without you knowing exactly where it is i think you'll be able to like tap it pretty easily Hmm. won't you agree yeah 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 definitely it's like uh it's ingrained in your muscle memory almost yeah muscle memory, spatial memory. So that, so that's just such a small little spatial area, right? That's a small little iPhone screen. But take that and put it all the way around you. And I think combining that with certain gestures and things, I think you'll be able to just do a lot more with just with the spatial, um, the spatialness of, of, of the design of things. So let's talk about the implications of this. So it, based on what you're finding out, based on the things we sort of know oh, and where... I- <laughs> Before, oh, okay, okay. I, uh, I mentioned Sherlock, and I want to. Yeah, I, no, let's bring that full circle. Yeah, um, in in the show, they actually mention the pal- memory palace is what he calls it, mm. and so it's a way for him to access all the knowledges in, own, in his own brain. And the way he like places things, or, or the way he remembers them, is he closes his eye and he envisions a palace that he has, and he knows every room in it. You know, he can walk around in a palace. Um, and he goes and actually just places pieces of information of, you know, evidence and things onto desks, onto walls, like spatially. And then that, that way, since you're better at getting, getting to spatial memory easier and quicker, he's able to, um, access those information better. Like he's like, okay, I'm going to place this evidence, you know, on the wall of the third room. And then he does that. And then a couple weeks later, he's like, oh, I need to access that. So he closes his eyes. He walks to that room. And then based on priming and cueing that happens when you're going through spatial um, places, he remembers what that information was. Um, so I think something like that could be really interesting in VR. Yes, that's exactly where I was going to ask you. Like, holy okay. crap. I've um, well, I, well, now I'm going to ask you this. I had another question. But now that you brought it that in that direction, let's go there. Sure. Because um, I, I, there's this Gear VR app. I don't know what it's called. I'll put it in the show notes. But it's this. Uh, it's this. You're able to put your regular photos um, that you have in, inside your phone inside of a 3D environment, inside of a VR environment. And so you can choose between a museum, a nice house, and you're just putting all your photos on the walls of the house. And um, and so and so that. The memory palace idea reminded me of that, but it could be so much better if if, yeah. if it could be done um, in that way. Like that's that's fascinating. We can that is fascinating. Actually, I didn't know that's which. Do you know if that's that's an app? Is like is that the Flickr app or is it's that? Not, just... It's not the Flickr. It's um. I'll add in the show notes and I'll look for it and I'll send you a link. Um. But yeah, oh. it's it's a pretty cool right. app where yeah you can store your photos in this you know in these virtual environments. Right. And yeah, that kind of reminds me of the memory palace. Although having my own memory palace would be pretty fucking awesome. I got to say. <laughs> imagine you don't even have to imagine it. You know, you'd have to just go in and then kind of like, uh, you'd have the actual environment for you to do that. And I'm, 
I mean, that could be a really cool experiment to run is like having people imagine their mind palaces and placing random bits of information or to actually do that in a spatial way uh, in VR. Um, I'm sure you'd get like pretty cool results from it, um, just from what I'd hypothesize. Yeah, this is a very good idea for some company like Evernote to start working Ooh, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I do want to mention that I, I'll send you the links and the, for all the papers and things that I've been mentioning, and you can totally put them in the show notes. Because I hate, like, if I listen to a podcast and it's like someone is just spouting off on all the science and like with, without any evidence and backings of it, it's like, okay, I don't even know what to look up anymore. And like, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that like would be interested in just seeing a lot more on what's happening on the research front because there 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 is a lot happening. It's not like as obviously as robust of a field as other <laughs> sciences or even just little subsections. But the VR research community is kind of old. <laughs> like there's been a lot of research, like I said, from the 90s that I think should be in. Uh, probably are being replicated now with you know the, the more standardized um, hardware with Oculus and I want to get a Vive for iLab so we can do a lot more spatial kind of things like walk around type of uh, experiments. So yeah, that would be awesome. Um, and thank you for the links. I highly, I'd uh, yeah greatly yeah. appreciate that. Um, going forward and in, uh, into a couple more questions uh, based on what you've seen and what you know, you know is. Are you pretty confident that the future of work will be in virtual reality, for example? Hmm. Um, I think to a certain extent, like, because <sighs> it'll be hard. It'll be hard to get users to actually want to do this unless their tasks, this task is made like 10 times easier or like, that's actually kind of like the number of people go by to break habits. It's like, unless an alternative is 10 times better than what their habit of them using is, then the users will not switch. But I think there are, there's definitely going to be certain um, applications that like will be easier to translate into VR and will really make sense to do things like that. Like I think virtual tele- teleconferencing in certain situations will be a lot better to do in, in VR than it is to do over the phone, especially when it comes to like pointing to things and like talking about something in, in, in a full three dimensional way, or even like editing a paper together. It's like a way you can just point to the places in the paper in a virtual reality than having to use move a cursor in you know Google Docs and whatnot um i think mainstream adoption of vr is like at least five years out and that's going to be still tech people that are going to be doing it but there is a difference between um the way like computer took so long for people to adopt it versus iphone which was even quicker versus vr where i think the spatialness and the intuitiveness of it could be a good, it's a good factor for people of all ages to kind of understand, but I think the weirdness of it, of having something on your face, might keep some people, you know, kind of a wave of it, a wave of it initially until they start seeing the, you know, how like, oh, it's common, kind of a common thing now for people to do it. And I think virtual reality won't be the best for for workspaces, it's going to be augmented reality. And there's a really, really cool video from... Do you know what Leap Motion is? Oh my god, sorry about the sound again. No, no, no worries. And <laughs> yes, I do know what the Leap Motion is. And we're so, about to get into a debate, AR versus VR, in terms of the <laughs> future of work. But please, I'd like to hear your argument for so it. So I'll link you this video too, or maybe you can even just find it. Mm-hmm. It's really easy. It's um, 
it was an internal video from a Leap Motion developer, and they've been because re- Leap Motion was developed just for as a mouse cursor on a, just a normal computer, and then they kind of retrofitted it to a, the Oculus when they realized when that thing was coming out and it could work well. Mm-hmm. And it was a good thing they did because it opened up a lot of interesting doors. But their new sensor is called the Leap Mo- uh, the Dragonfly, mm-hmm. and it's it's a full. Uh, it's a full color camera pass through that they have in it, and the sensor uh, range is a lot bigger, so you can fully see your hands. You know, you don't have to keep it right in front of your face, type of issues. Um, but what? So they one of the internal developers put out this really cool test demo that they made, and it's using the video pass through. So he's wearing the Oculus, and he has the, the dragonfly on it. He clicks the button, and then he goes through a full video passage. So he's seeing what's in front of him, but it has the augmented reality uh, displays. So like he has like an article to the left of him where he's lo- he's looking still at his computer, but to the left there's an article. On the bottom there are these chat bubbles of the people. Like he can tap on that, and then like he can talk talk to them. Or if he plays a video, there's this really cool gesture he does from like he, so he has all these you know windows in his computer he like grabs them and then blows them out and then every window comes out of his computer into full space in front of him and he can just look at them and he can you know sort things through there like much it's it's essentially like a extended screen into a full on surrounding you um it's a super interesting video it's like a minute and a half that he does but it kind of helps you understand like how AR and VR could be used in workspace environments like very, very soon, I think. Okay. So I totally see that. I can see that happening and I can see the value in it being 10 times better than what we have now. But here's my reasoning for why VR could be potentially better for the future of productivity and work. Mm-hmm. And I use my experience um, as an example. And although it might be anecdotal, I think there's something here. And the idea so. is that um, I'm lazy as fuck. And I want to lay down and use eye tracking to get... Because all those gestures, you know, waving my hands around um, after eight hours, ten hours of work, that's going to be a workout. <laughs> yeah. And that's that could get... Um, you know, and I don't know how many people will have the ability to, you know, continue have that stamina. Maybe they, maybe it's a good thing. Maybe it's actually, maybe it's something we need. But at the same time, I can also see me uh, being completely laid out on a bed, um, and every subconscious process happening in my brain that is driving me to stand up or sit down, or use my hands, or, you know, all that stuff, you know, I don't, it, it, my thinking is, and f- feel free to please dispel this, uh, my, yeah, uh, my, yeah, my thinking right. here, is that by freeing up your body from doing all these other, you know, subconscious tasks, you'll have more sort of cognitive brain processing memory to mm-hmm. deal with just the work at hand. And mind you, you know, you're just eye tracking. All you need is eye tracking, voice, um, maybe maybe a keyboard, you know, that you can sort of <laughs> yeah. a Bluetooth keyboard or something. Right, right. Um, but yeah, because cause that's, that's the other thing that, that VR might have an advantage of is like I don't have to travel to the office. I don't have to, you know, and then I could do work probably four times faster, you know, and then I get out of bed and then right. I go out for a run and do the thing for the rest of the day. So I think I think 
um, working from a ver- from a remote environment is definitely going to be more productive because of VR. Because when you're right now, when you're working from home, let's say, mm-hmm. um, you know, just on your computer, there's a lot. Environmental cues are really big, so like you will get distracted by other things very easily. That's what environmental cues kind of do. It's by you just looking around and seeing things that kind of draw your attention. So when you're at work, obviously those environmental cues are a lot more work related. So so let's say you're in a virtual environment and you're and it's actually your office and everyone is no one actually is at the office. They're all from at their desk in their virtual environment. So and you're all in the same virtual office workspace. So the cues are still going to be the same as being in a workplace because you're seeing your coworkers there. You're seeing the things that are happening. Say even like the objects that they're creating are actually created in real time in front of you. Like so, I think there's a lot to be said there. Um, but there is like you mentioned that your hands will get tired of like keeping it up in the air and that's it's obviously that's a huge thing and you even I mean I'm a lazy person and even when I'm in bed rolled over to my side there's certain gestures I don't want to do because it requires like my finger moving like way up to the top left of the screen or something like we're lazy people and we have to kind of design we have to design around that and not make the user kind of like tire themselves out or kind of like bend themselves to the system. So that's what I mean by this is still so early in their development that we still don't know how to like make do things. Like we don't even have the input systems fully done yet. Like the Oculus Connect or the the touch controls aren't out yet. You know, not everyone has an HTC Vive controller. Like we're just still using Leap Motion um, as the the only kind of like real input method in real space, and the way you can you use that is like it's such a small little range, so you have to keep your arms up, and they get tired. Like, so there's there's a lot of kinks that are still being worked out that I think will be a lot better. Let's say in like three four years down the line, like it'll be a lot more common practices will be set in stone. I um I, I want to start bringing things to a close with the with this final final topic on my end, and then I want to know you have any final thoughts on your end. Um, sure. But the final th- sort of thought that I have on my end is um, the relationship between virtual reality and neuroplasticity. Um, I think I think they're pretty much interconnected here, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that this this is why VR is so powerful for things like post traumatic stress disorder and phobias and mm-hmm. you know to some degree I, I I would imagine that even addiction um, people with addiction problems would also be able to benefit from a virtual reality sort of therapies or whatnot because again neuro neuroplasticity my understanding is that it's the ability for the brain to sort of rewire itself and change and adapt um and so and so my thinking and the hope really is is that we really harness vr um and the relationship to neuroplasticity for the better or do you think that it's that i'm overplaying the um, no, not not at all, not at all. And actually, that that's kind of the the research was driven before the Oculus and everything was out. The research was really driven from a medical and um, therapy kind of perspective because the only people that actually had enough money to develop their own you know systems and had money for the research like this was either the medical tech or the or the military. Like the military actually has done a lot of PTSD research in virtual reality, and it's and it's proven to work really well. So that will be a big thing. 
Yeah, so I'm excited for that um, and see where it's going to go. Um, but Asad, do you have or Oz or Asad? What, what are your <laughs> final thoughts on, uh, on on yeah anything that's in your mind yeah. that you want to bring up? Um, I think the final thing I'd mention, even though it might be like kind of like preaching to the qu- to the choir, because like who else would be listening to a VR podcast than <laughs> people that are really into it? And the NSA, right? Right. Um, the problem that we I keep running into is just like people every time I pitch VR talk to even like friends in my age around VR in every conversation it's almost like Goodwin's Law the problem of addiction will come up of like well you know if it's so real and and then if you know people get addicted to it and just want to be in there for their entire life I'm like well you know like look at computers look at phones today like look at people look at the tech that we have today Look at, yes, there are users and there are always going to be a subset of people that will want to just use that for 24 hours a day and not move out of their home and not do anything except for just that tech. There's people like that that exist right now. But the grand majority of users of this technology don't do that. And I don't think VR is going to be replacing anything, anything any real value of having real life experiences at all. I think VR is good at a lot of things, at certain things, but not it's not going to be replacing real life events. Like going to Everest in VR, it will not be like going to Everest in real life will still be heralded as a great thing. Like, you know, you'll tell someone like, oh yeah, I was in Everest. So like, was that in real life? They're like, yeah. I'm like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like even that, that could be a conversation, let's say like 20 years down the line when VR is a common thing. Like, the real life experiences is going to be very hard to replace and people getting worried that like people are not going to be outside and doing things outside is I think a, like an unfounded or like kind of a bad argument to be making. Yeah. Um, my, my thinking on that front is sort of my, fundamentally, what is it that we're talking about? And I think it's freedom. Um, I think people, if people have the freedom, freedom to drink alcohol, um, that it's something that kills what, like six thousand people a year, just in the states, maybe more. Um, if they have the freedom to drive cars that kill forty thousand people a year, mm-hmm. if they have the freedom of to own objects that kill you in an instant, then what are we talking? About? Why are you scared of this technology? Yeah, <laughs> well, you know, it, maybe we need to have a broader conversation about what freedom is and what it means for each and every one of us before we start um, getting scared about this. You know, technology that, quite frankly, is going to come at us with a spectrum of both the good and the bad, the ugly, the weird, and the pornographic. Um, And that's something that we've all been sort of dealing with. The exception is is that the book and the script hasn't been written for this yet. And, yeah, my – and I think people are just scared that we're living in the science fiction novel that they have no control of. Um, Yeah, exactly. Like, I – People are like the fear of the unknown. Just is always such a prevalent kind of like uh, phenomenon. People, you know, like everyone is always. If you don't know something, you are obviously more skeptical of it. You're less likely to change your own habits and the way you view the world through the things. Like you've seen, you've seen that time and time again. But like, I just want people, like, for all the listeners out there that like get asked that question, like, just kind of like make like make it apparent to them that like look at the tech that we have now and look at how the grand majority of people are using it and you will still always have people that like misuse it and 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 like the benefits of the technology 
currently like outweigh the drawbacks, but there will always be drawbacks with every design, with every technology. And you just have to make sure that the benefits actually do outweigh the, the, the drawbacks. And it, go ahead, sir. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's kind of all I kind of wanted to say in that. It's, it's fascinating that we're running into this, uh, now I don't know what it is, this situation, this circumstance where we're seeing, um, we're seeing who is and who isn't, um, or we're seeing what is it that people, people value more, freedom or, or fear. Um, mm. And I, maybe it's not as black and white, um, but, I, but I, I, I tend to think that, yeah, at, at, at this point in, uh, in our human condition and existence, I think that fear is winning out um, because I don't know if the concept of freedom, of what it means to be free is quite easy for people to understand. Everybody has their own idea of what freedom is, what it means to be free. Um, but everybody understands fear. Fear right. is a very powerful emotion. And it sucks because it was, it's, it's so easy to manipulate people with fear, you know? Yeah, it, it is. And it's because it's a lot easier of a emotion to kind of like tap into. Like with freedom, it's, I think it has even more levels of abstraction because freedom doesn't really mean much. It's what you do with the freedom that like you realize that you have the freedom with, you know, like that's the whole like philosophical issue with like the dread of freedom or like the inhibitation of, you know, where it stops you and it like kind of freezes you and you're like, oh shit, I have this much freedom. I don't know what to do with it. Um, but fear is a lot easier. Fear is something you want to avoid and fear is something you don't want to, you know, be in the midst of. So I think that's, you, you can attribute, you know, people's reactions just based on that explanation. This is a, this might be a simple or easy question for you, but do you think that VR is here to free us or enslave us? <laughs> uh, do you think your iPhone is freeing you or is it enslaving you? Oh, shit. Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Um, I have a bipolar re sentiment relationship to that. Yeah. Exactly. Like we are so tied to it and we check it every however minutes for a text. Yet we what, yet it gives you so many great tools that you think if you don't have those right now, you will be kind of less free with less information. And I, I mean, that's where I live too. Like I don't even know how to answer that question because in a way I am really tied down to my iPhone. But – I get so much from it. So that that's that's I think they're gonna be exactly the same issue we'll have with VR and with every technology really. It's like it's freeing in a lot of senses, but also it could tie you down in like that's just the entire entire like reward system of your brain, you know, like you love the dopamine rushes that you get from scrolling through feeds and, and reading and getting uh you know plus ones, notifications, likes, whatever. And that that's the kind of the feedback loop that you kinda of go through with your own technology. Yeah, this is gonna be a fun conversation to have over time. Um Yeah, yeah. Asad, Asad, you have been a. Tr I've conclusively decided that you are a true scholar and gentleman of virtual reality. I, I thank you very much for your time. It's been an honor and pleasure, my friend. How can people stay in touch and follow what you're doing if that's the thing? Um, sure. I I kind of have an active Twitter page that I've. That's kind of very new. I'd say I've been only on Twitter for the past couple of months, but like that has been really my main source of like everything VR. Um, so it's called Azad UX, A-Z-A-D-U-X. Um, so it's like twitter.com slash Azad UX. Um, and I post like a lot of 
my designs that I've been thinking about, new gestures and interfaces, or even just like interesting articles, uh, research that I find. Um, yeah, that's kind of like the the new public profile that people can reach you through is like just your Twitter. Like, <laughs> unless you have a Twitter, you don't really exist on the internet, apparently. So yeah, it's, uh, it's so it seems. Um, well, all right, I'll add I'll add that in all the other resources and research all, all in the uh, yeah. links and notes. Um, dude, thanks again for your time. It was a lot of fun. Looking forward thank to the next one. Chris. Thank you, Chris, for lending me your ears. And bam. Okay. Nice. That was.